Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 through 20. Of course, uh, this opens up with John having a vision, if you will. In reality, I think it's more than a vision. It's a real encounter with the glorified Christ. And he's giving us an amazing description of what Jesus looks like now in all of his glory. Now, John, Peter, James, and John got a little glimpse on the Mount of Transfiguration, if you recall, when uh, Moses and Elijah came to speak with Jesus, and Jesus was shining, glowing, a lot like what happened to Moses when he went up on Mount Sinai. But even that vision of Jesus, the glorified Christ, was not nearly what we see here in Revelation chapter 1. If you could go up into heaven right now and stand before the throne of God, seated on his right hand would be Jesus Christ, and he would look like what we're seeing here in Revelation chapter 1. So we pick it up in verse 17. And when I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you've seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And we mentioned last week, it could mean literally angels that each church had its own angel assigned to it, but it could also mean the pastor of the church because Angel simply means messenger. At any rate, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. And didn't Jesus say that we would be the light of the world? So that's what we'll look at today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for those who have gathered here today, both in the main sanctuary and the kids' church, the, the cafe, the patio, all over this property today. Lord, just be with us now. We ask that you'd Pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. Give us insight and understanding into this vitally important book, the last book in the Bible, the book that is going to prepare us for the very soon return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Bless this study now, Father, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet. This is, as they say, not your father's Jesus. This is the risen, glorified priest and judge. And John was overwhelmed by his power and majesty, just blown away. And we see something similar. We, we spoke either last week or the week before about the vision that Ezekiel had. And how, in the same way that John says he was in the Spirit, Ezekiel was caught up in the Spirit and given this amazing vision. Uh, Ezekiel 128, Like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the brightness all around it. And that would be the, the throne of God, that chariot of fire with God on the throne traveling through outer space, if you will. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard a voice of one speaking. A lot of similarities between Ezekiel's experience and John's because we're dealing with the same God. And so he says, I fell at his feet as dead, and then he laid his right hand on me. That's significant. It shows 
uh, that John, as a born-again believer, the favor of God was with him. The right hand is symbolic of favor, favoritism. And so John makes a point to, of the fact that it was Jesus' right hand, and now Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's the place of favor. And then Jesus tells John, don't be afraid. It's okay, John, it's me, Jesus, the one you love and serve, your master, your savior, your brother. And those who know, love, and serve Christ do not need to fear his awesome power. We actually share in it. Do you realize that? We share in that power, that dunamis. It's a Greek word uh, for our word dynamite, dunamis, the power of the Holy Spirit. And so it can be a bit overwhelming, but Jesus encourages John, don't be afraid, it's all right. And of course, Jesus, or John, is referred to in his own gospel as the one, the disciple whom Jesus loved. So I guess it shouldn't be surprising that John would be the one that Jesus chose to make this revelation to. And by the way, this phrase, and I can't think of a more appropriate time to be talking about this, the phrase, do not be afraid, appears 65 times in the Old and New Testament in the King James Version, or the New King James Version. 65 times is a lot of times for one phrase. Do not be afraid. Now again, as I said earlier, we should be wise, don't be foolish, don't do stupid things like some of these people who go into supermarkets and cough and sneeze and spit on everything just to be rotten. So the other side of that would be don't just go around touching everybody and everything you can. But at the same time, this is, this is a mandate from the Lord. We talk about these mandates that these various governmental officials are laying out. This is a mandate from the Lord. Do not be afraid. We need to be, have confidence in God's hand of protection to be upon us. And as I've said so many times, we're not going anywhere till he's done with us. Now, having said that, that doesn't mean we're always going to feel real good. We might not feel real good sometimes, but we're not going anywhere until he's done with us. And when he is done with us, why should we want to stick around? You know, it's like, uh, you know, outdated food and supplements and stuff, you know. When they're outdated, you're supposed to get rid of them, right? <laughs> when we're outdated in this world, it's time to move on to a better place, Right? Matthew 14, 26, the disciples saw him walking on the sea. Remember when Jesus walked on water? They were troubled, saying, it's a ghost! So we see that those disciples were somewhat superstitious. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now remember, there was a pretty violent storm going on out there in the Sea of Galilee when this took place, so... You could say, you know, in the natural, it would be understandable that they would be fearful. And I'm not sure if they were more afraid of the storm or afraid of what they thought was a ghost. But again, Jesus says, do not be afraid. Matthew 28, 9. This is where the women uh, worshiped the risen Lord. As they went to tell his disciples that, that he is risen, they'd seen him. Behold, Jesus met them saying, rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. I love that. Can you just picture those ladies 
getting down on their hands and knees and holding on to Jesus' feet. I think that's beautiful. And worship. then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid, because they're still, there was just all this emotional turmoil going on. First they see the empty tomb. They think somebody's stolen the body. They really believe Jesus is dead. And they find out he's alive. What a shock that would be. Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And so, in all actuality, throughout the course of human history, when people have had divine encounters of this nature, it's, it can be a somewhat fearful experience because of the power, the awesomeness of God, the awesomeness of Jesus Christ. Remember in the garden, when they went to arrest Jesus, all these uh, guards and priests and so forth were there. And they said, oh, we're looking for this Jesus guy. Where is he? Jesus says, I'm he. And remember they all fell over? Do you remember that? Have you ever thought about that? The power of Jesus Christ and just the power of his word. In the book of Genesis, God spoke all things into existence. Called divine fiat. That's the um, theological term. Divine fiat. To speak things from nothing into something. And, and in the book of Revelation chapter 19, when we come back with Jesus, he will defeat the armies of this world by the sword that comes out of his mouth, by his spoken word. And we've seen demonstrations of that even here on earth when he spoke in the garden and all those people fell over. Here John falls at his feet. But Jesus says, don't be afraid. You're one of mine. You have nothing to be afraid of. If we know God, if we love God, if we fear God, then his power is a comfort to us. But for those who don't know him, oftentimes they're too foolish to realize the awesomeness of his power. I forget who it was, one of the greats of the faith. Might have been John Bunyan or one of those guys, but uh, um, at any rate, the, comp the statement that he made, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Jesus tells John, I'm the first and the last. Now in verse 8, we saw previously that God is called the Alpha and the Omega. Here Jesus gives himself the same title. I'm the first and the last. Indicating, as we already know, that Jesus is God. There's one God. Deuteronomy 6, Hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. But he manifests himself in three persons. The Father, the Son, and and the Holy Spirit. I am the first. I've got it all under control, John. It all started with me. It will all conclude with me in terms of this age. Jesus said, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. And then at the end of the millennium, we move into eternity. No more time whatsoever. But I'm the first and the last. I've got it all under control. Can you imagine... This is just the beginning of this incredible revelation. John's getting a real dynamic introduction. And then Jesus goes on in verse 18. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. This is another awesome title for Jesus. I love it. There's so many great titles for him. King of kings, Lord of lords, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Yeshua HaMashiach. God is our salvation, the Messiah, the anointed one. And here he says, I am he who lives. It's kind of like 
When God spoke to Moses in the burning bush, tell them I am has sent you. And then Jesus told the Pharisees before Abraham was, I am. And here he designates himself as I am he who lives. We have the only belief system on the planet that worships someone who's actually still alive. Think about that one. I'd much rather worship the living Jesus than the dead Buddha, the dead Krishna, or any of those, wouldn't you? Romans 8, 29, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Jesus is the firstborn among all those who are now called the sons of God. And that's a generic term, so ladies, don't be offended. You're the daughters of God. The first fruits, 1 Corinthians 15, 20. Now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is our guarantee of eternal life. I am he who lives and was dead, but not for very long, right? Less than three full days. I am alive forevermore. Our God is not dead. He's alive. Hallelujah, right? You just can't kill the eternal one, you see. There's an old expression, you can't keep a good man down. I like to say you can't keep the God man down. He died, but he rose again. I was reminded of the chorus from an old Bill Gaither song, Because He Lives, I Can Face Tomorrow. Because He Lives, All Fear Is Gone. Keep that in mind. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. Good song, Bill Gaither. Another one, Don Francisco, a very popular song around Easter time, which unfortunately we were not able to celebrate together this year in person. He's alive, Don Francisco. That's, most of the words are just, he's alive. He's alive, he's alive, he's alive, and I'm forgiven. Heaven's gates are open wide. He's alive. Good stuff. I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of Hades and of death. So Jesus has authority over physical death and Hades, the place that temporarily holds the souls of the unbelievers between death and the ultimate casting into the lake of fire. Now for the believer, the moment we die, we cast off these temporary dwellings, these mortal bodies, According to Jesus himself, he told the thief on the cross, this day you will be with me in paradise. Not the dead body that was hanging on the cross. That'll be in the tomb, in the grave, awaiting resurrection. But our spirits, the very essence of who we are, immediately goes into the presence of the Lord. Where is he? He's in heaven, right? With God the Father. So where are you and I going to go when we die? To heaven. And then we're going to come back with him at the end of the tribulation. But, okay, so where to the unrighteous dead, the ones that are not saved, the ones who have not put their faith in Christ, they're hoping they just go to sleep and don't wake up. But that's not how it works. Hades is the temporary holding tank, if you will. Remember the story of Lazarus and the rich man? Lazarus is sitting there at the gate, right? He's covered with sores. The dogs are licking his sores. My dogs always come up trying to lick, and my, lick my cuts and scrapes and stuff. Probably not a good idea from what I've read recently. The old wives' tale is a dog licks your sore and it'll heal, you know. 
I don't know if that, <laughs> it's a little bit questionable. But there's Lazarus. He's at the gate of the rich man's, you know, expansive domain. Dogs are licking his sores. He's out there begging for alms. Well, he dies and he goes into Abraham's bosom. Now, that's where the believers went prior to the coming of Christ. Uh, many believe that was actually in the core of the earth, the center of the earth. Abraham's bosom. And then there was a great chasm, a great divide, and the unbelievers would go to the other side where the temperature was much higher. They didn't have an HVAC system on that side. And then the rich man dies, remember? Now, in this life, in this world, Lazarus is way down here and the rich guy's way up here. But death has a tendency to level the playing field, you see? And so the rich man dies. He's over there in the hot spot. And he calls out across the chasm, Father Abraham, please send Lazarus over to give me a drink. It's burning up over here. And it was like, of course, sorry, no can do. So, now, under the new covenant in Christ, the New Testament, believers immediately go into the presence of the Lord, and the unbelievers go to a place called Hades. And Jesus says, I have the keys of Hades and of death. Ultimate destination, like I said, for us, we come back with Christ, rule and reign for a thousand years, and then the new Jerusalem comes where we will dwell forever with God himself. But the unbelievers, ultimately, after the final judgment, the great white throne judgment, Revelation chapter 20, they will be cast into the lake of fire, Revelation 20, 14. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire, this is the second death. You've probably heard me say this before. There's an old expression. Born once, that would be physical birth, die twice. If you're only born once, you're going to die twice. You're going to die a physical death, and then you're going to die an eternal spiritual death. Born twice, guess what? Die once. Physical death, and then you look, go on to live forever. Death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And so you see, people worry about a lot of different things, don't they? Right now they're worried about coronavirus. They're worried about economic catastrophe and so forth. People worry about other people liking them, not liking them, being popular, not popular so on and so forth. You know what all, the only thing that really matters? is where are you going to spend eternity? Yeah. Now, if that has been settled for you, if you have placed your faith in the Son of the living God for the salvation of your soul, no matter what comes your way, you can still have peace, you can still have joy, because you are not under the circumstances, get it? How are you doing? Oh, not bad under the circumstances. What are you doing under there? <laughs> We're seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. All right, verse 19. Jesus giving some instructions here to John. Very important verse. Write the things which you have seen, which would be what he has seen so far in chapter 1. The revealing, the unveiling of the glorified Christ and all of his majesty. Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, 
and the things which will take place after this. This verse gives us the basic outline of the book. The New American Standard says, The things which you have seen, the things which are, the things which shall take place after these things. What has he seen so far? The glorified Christ, chapter 1. What is now? The present condition of the seven churches of Asia Minor, which we will look at in chapters 2 and 3. And each one of those churches, there's an immediate application for the words that Christ sends to those churches through John. Each church, there's a message for each church that is applicable to them at that very moment in time. But we also find as we study this that each church represents a different time in the history of the church and the spiritual climate of the church in that era. As an example, the final church in chapter 3 of Revelation is the church of Laodicea, which is known as the Luke warm church this is the church that will be in existence right up to the time of the rapture and the tribulation and the second coming of christ the, the final church on the earth again so i you've heard me say it many times i do not agree with these preachers who keep saying we're on the verge of a great worldwide revival that's a bunch of hogwash i'll tell you when the greatest revival will happen right after the rapture and that's one of the reasons the rapture has to happen before the tribulation, because God is a God of grace and mercy. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And right now, the testimony of the church on the earth is weak at best. Sadly, believers are constantly doing things that discredit the name of Christ. Why? Because we're imperfect. We're weak. And the church has become weaker and weaker in these last days. It is the church of Laodicea, the lukewarm church. More people will get saved by you being raptured than by you being here in person. Now, we know there's going to be people saved in the tribulation because we will be learning about their martyrdom as they will be beheaded for the cause of Christ. But I believe that one of God's purposes for the pre-tribulational rapture, it's another opportunity to get many people saved. How many of you have told someone in your life about the rapture of the church, the second coming of Christ, the tribulation? And when they see that you suddenly disappear, there's a good chance that they're going to decide they need Jesus. Right now, they don't think they do. Even in the midst of a pandemic, People are not turning to God like you might expect. We had a two-week revival after 9-1-1. See, revivals keep getting weaker and shorter because we are now in the era of Laodicea. What you have seen, John, the glorified Christ, me, what is now, what is the present condition of these churches, and as we go through this, you're going to be amazed that already by the end of the first century, the church was in the condition that it was in, which is just another reminder of how desperately we need God. We need Jesus. Even with Jesus, it's a tough road to hoe. Without him, it's impossible. And then finally, what will take place later? So we have chapter 1, the glorified Christ, chapters 2 and 3, the conditions of the seven churches of Asia Minor, which also correlate with the churches down through history. 
Finally, chapters 4 all the way to 22, the whole rest of the book has to do with what will take place later or after these things. And as we will see in a few weeks, the third section begins with chapter 4, verse 1, the rapture of the church. The end times, the last days, the fulfillment of God's plan for the ages, culminating in the judgment of the earth and its inhabitants and the establishment of Christ's earthly kingdom. And then in verse 20, he just very clearly tells us what he meant earlier on when he talked about the seven stars, the seven lampstands. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last. Verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. And that harkens back to verse 11 where he says, I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book, send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. So these were seven literal churches in what is now modern-day Turkey. Interesting that Turkey is now a Muslim nation. To Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now I want to, just as a little preview for what's happening next week in chapter 2 and 3, give you seven key elements that we will see in chapters 2 and 3. One, we will learn about the meaning of the name of each church that's being addressed. Two, the title of Jesus and each one of these titles will be relevant to the message to that particular church. He will identify himself by a different title as it relates to that particular church. Thirdly, we will see the commendation of things that have been done well. And Jesus uh, is a good role model for us in that regard that sometimes when we have to exercise tough love, he's going to be rebuking these churches for some of the things that they're doing or not doing. But he he starts off with a commendation of the things that they've done well. And that that would be something we should do uh, when we're dealing with one another. It's always best to start off with something positive. And then next, though, we will see the criticism of things that need attention. And so God is balanced. He's not one-sided. We know that there are some elements of the church today only want to focus on the nice things, the warm, fluffy things, right? The things that make you feel good. And if the pastor ever says anything that makes you feel bad, well, they're out of there. But the problem is there's a lot of things in the Scriptures that will make you feel bad. Because they're full of truth. And there's an old expression, the truth hurts. But God is balanced. He speaks the truth to us in love. And so we will see the commendations. We'll see the criticisms for the purpose of correction. Why does Jesus criticize some of these churches? Because he doesn't want them to continue down the wrong path, which would ultimately lead to destruction. God loves you. And has a wonderful plan for your life, according to the old four spiritual laws put out many years ago by Campus Crusade for Christ. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And when you're doing something to mess up that plan, then he is going to deal with you on it. The Lord chastens those whom he loves, right? A loving parent will discipline their children. Our fifth thing, the exhortation... So we have the commendation, the criticism, and then the exhortation or the encouragement specific to the condition of that particular 
church. So he doesn't just leave them hanging. It's not like he's, he butters them up with a few compliments and then he comes in for the kill. No, then he comes in with the exhortation. But here's what you need to do and here's what will happen. The blessings that will come to you if you heed my words and obey me. Sixth, there's a promise in each of these messages to the seven churches to the overcomer. Those who overcome. The faithful remnant. Remember when Elijah had his confrontation with the prophets of Baal, 400 of them, and he won because God was on his side. But then he went off sulking, got a nasty letter from Jezebel, I'm going to take you out, you're toast, you're dead meat. And he's complaining because nobody in Israel but him worships God. Do you ever feel that way sometimes? And God corrects him, no, you're wrong. There are 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so Jesus has a special promise for the overcomer. Why? Overcoming's not easy. Enduring. Those who endure to the end will be saved. God has called us to be overcomers in Christ. But that means we have to overcome the world, the flesh, the devil. We have to overcome every effort of the enemy working through human instruments to dilute, pervert, distort the truth of God's word, to reinvent Christianity, as many are saying today. Oh, well, we're in a postmodern world now. If we're going to reach these people for Christ, we've got to reinvent. No, we don't. No, we don't. God invented the faith that we possess. It comes from him, not from us. Who are we to reinvent what God has established? God doesn't need to change. We do. Right? An overcomer is one who will resist those things. You see, we find many people in the church today beginning to cave, beginning to give in to abortion, to homosexuality, to gay marriage, to all the things that the Bible says are abominations. That's not being an overcomer, folks. That's not enduring to the end. Well, you got to, what, what is it, go along to get along? No, I'm sorry. Did Jesus do that? Did the apostles do that? Did the early Christians do that? Did the Christians even now who are dying for their faith in many parts of the world, are they doing that? We are called to be overcomers. And that's why it's important that we stick together. We have to encourage one another. I want to see these seats filled up here pretty quick. I'm serious. People need to get back to church. What's more dangerous? What's more dangerous, dying of the coronavirus or dying of spiritual starvation? I think you know the answer. I think you know the answer. Now, I hope I don't get it. I haven't gotten it so far. I have every one of the conditions that they say makes me a prime target. But I also have God. I have Jesus Christ. So I don't spend too much time fretting about it. The worst case scenario is I get to go be with Jesus and my wife doesn't have to put up with me anymore. So it's a no-lose situation. 
I know she loves me, but I can be very trying at times. I'm sure you can't imagine that. It's like Rush Limbaugh says, I'm just a warm, fuzzy, lovable teddy bear. Okay, and then finally, number seven of the seven key elements, if you're making notes. The key phrase that we will see in chapters 2 and 3, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. And obviously, he's talking about spiritual ears. Those of you who are walking in the Spirit, listening to the Spirit, if you have an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. So this is a message from God handed off to John. The Holy Spirit will be speaking through these messages to those who are listening. And so chapter 2 begins with this phrase, verse 1, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write. So Ephesus is the first one on the list. Ephesus is representative of the great evangelistic church of the first century. It was full of spiritual vitality and strength. The word Ephesus means the desired one, which appropriately describes the church as Jesus sees it. However, in comes the criticism. By the end of the first century, the people had left their first love for Christ and for each other. Verse 4 of Revelation 2, Jesus says to the church of Ephesus, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. So in spite of all their hard work, their evangelism and so forth, having that designation as the desired one, they had left their first love. And so overcoming, enduring, has to do with maintaining that love, that agape love, the fruit of the Spirit in our hearts for God and for one another. That's where we'll pick it up next week. Let's stand and pray. Father God, we do thank you for this awesome, amazing book. It's sad to think that many people within the church believe it should not be studied. Too controversial, too difficult, and so forth. And yet, Lord, it's the only book of the Bible that promises a special blessing for those who read it, hear it, and put it into practice. Lord, we pray that these next many months, maybe even a couple of years, as we go through this book, you would just continue to prepare us for that moment when we will see you face to face. Thank you, God, for the blessed hope, the sure and certain hope of salvation and eternal life through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for this gathering today. We pray for safe travel as we go home. In Jesus' name, amen.